before we get into today's episode, I just want to include a quick disclaimer. During the recording of this episode, we had a few technical problems with the audio. So apologies in advance for any dips in quality that you see in the audio throughout this episode. Hi guys, and welcome to Time Travelling Team, the weekly podcast where we review every story of Doctor Who, right from the very beginning. I'm Paddy. And I'm Trisha. In this week's episode, we're looking back at the six-episode story, The Keys of Marinus. We'll be going through some trivia, discussing the characters, and giving our thoughts on the story as a whole. Before we jump into the discussion, though, Paddy, why don't you give us a rundown of today's story? Guys go looking for some keys, stuff happens. <laughs> Summary. <laughs> Okay, maybe we should go a bit more detail than that, Uh, Okay. Episode 1, The Sea of Death. The TARDIS lands on an island in the middle of a lake with a giant monolith in the centre of it. They check their surroundings via the outside view screens. Ian thinks he saw something outside, but passes it off as a shadow. They exit the TARDIS to take a look outside. As they are doing this, four cylinders emerge from the water, and a figure in a wetsuit stalks the travellers. The island is unnervingly quiet as they look around. They notice the sand closer to the water is actually a very fine glass, and Ian stops Susan and Barbara as they are about to enter a paddling pool. They see one of Susan's shoes fall in and dissolve as if it was eaten by acid. Barbara notices that the pool is actually a tidal pool, and that must mean that the surrounding water is acid as well. The figure in the wetsuit tries to enter the TARDIS, but flees as Susan goes back to get another pair of shoes. As she leaves the TARDIS, she notices the footprints of their stalker and follows after them. Another wetsuited figure emerges from hiding and follows after her. While they are waiting for her to return, the others come across the cylinders and the doctors think that they must be designed to travel through the acid. They see that one of the cylinders has a crack in it and come across an empty wetsuit. Barbara notices a small tear and that the occupant was most likely dissolved by the acid. They notice the monolith and decide to collect Susan and go and investigate. When they arrive back at the TARDIS, they discover Susan missing and assume that she has gone to the monolith. Once they reach the monolith, they decide to split up to find her, with Ian and Barbara going in one direction and the doctor the other, so they can complete a full circuit of the monolith. As Susan is exploring the structure, one of the stalkers lies in wait for her with a knife. Suddenly, a trapdoor opens in the wall, and the figure falls through it. The same fate befalls Susan, and she screams as she falls through the trapdoor. Ian and Barbara hear her and rush after her. Meanwhile, the doctor also falls through one. Ian and Barbara reach the area where they thought they heard Susan scream, but there is no sign of her, nor of the doctor. Inside the monolith, Susan is exploring when a roped figure emerges from the hallway behind her, but retreats back the way it came. As she backs away from it, the stalker grabs Susan, but she manages to fend him off. The stalker falls to the ground with a knife at its back, and the robe figure once again emerges from the hallway. Ian and Barbara are trying to figure out what happened to the others, but both of them fall through separate trapdoors. Ian comes across the body of the stalker and continues on down the hallway. The doctor, Barbara and Susan are in a holding cell and discussing what has happened to them. The doctor deduces that the people in the wetsuits are intruders, and the robed ones are the inhabitants of the monolith. The doctor says that Ian is their best chance of rescue, but Barbara informs him that he went missing just before she did. In the hallway, Ian comes across one of the men in the robe struggling with one of the wetsuited intruders, and goes to his aid. Together, they manage to force him through a trapdoor that leads into the acid sea. He thanks Ian, and introduces himself as Arbitan. He informs him that he is the sole occupant of the monolith, and that the invaders are from a race called the Vords. He takes Ian to the others, but neither of them notice the last remaining Vord following after them. Arbitan tells them that they are on the planet Marinus, and that he is the keeper of a machine called the Conscience of Marinus. The conscience was designed to be an impartial and infallible judgement machine that kept law and order on the planet. The machine reached its peak when it was able to control and eradicate evil thoughts to create a utopian society. For centuries, Marinus lived in peace until the Vords, led by Yartek, assaulted the planet. 
The inhabitants were not able to defend themselves, so they scattered the control keys for the conscience all over the planet so the Vords could not get control of it. In the meantime, the conscience was upgraded to exude inf- its influence over the Vords. Arbertan says that he has lost all hope of recovering the keys, as all his friends and family perished under attempts to retrieve them, and he says that the travellers must retrieve them now. The Doctor refuses and they depart back to the TARDIS. However, Arbitan has raised a force field around it, saying he will let them back into it once they have recovered the keys. With no choice, the travellers agree to help Arbitan, and he says that he knows the rough area of each of the keys, and gives them a pre-programmed travel dial that will bring them to each destination one after the other. Barbara activates hers and disappears. The others follow after her, after Arbitan urges them to ensure the Vords do not get control of the machine. After they leave, the last Vord enters and kills Arbitan. The Doctor, Ian and Susan arrive at their destination and see Barbara's dial on the floor, speckled with blood. Episode 2. The Velvet Web They see a doorway behind them and the Doctor deduces that whoever took Barbara must be behind it. Ian rushes through it, but the Doctor advises caution, but it's too late as once he opens the door an alarm goes off. The alarm seems to be pain-inducing, but it is suddenly turned off. Inside, they see Barbara reclining on a sofa, wearing Grecian-style clothing and being attended to by two handmaidens. She says that they, she panicked after using the travel dial and she scratched herself as she tore it off her arm. She summons more food for her friends as they look around at their new surroundings. Ian is hesitant to partake of any of the food until he knows who their host is. A male attendant arrives and says they are in the city of Morphaton, where the inhabitants live in bliss as their every desire is catered for. He says he will give the travellers whatever they like and it will be ready for them in the morning. The travellers retire for the evening, but Ian is still very sceptical, being unnerved by the fact that the attendant never once blinked. Barbara says he's being overcautious and not to worry and that they should all go to sleep, to which he agrees. As they sleep, a female attendant enters the room and places a small disc on each of their heads, but the one on Barbara's head falls off. She wakes up and the alarm goes off, rendering her unconscious. In the morning, the Dr. Ian and Susan are enjoying their breakfast as Barbara is still asleep. Ian and Doctor comment on a mark on each of their foreheads while Susan goes to wake up Barbara to show her a dress that was made for her. Barbara wakes up and is horrified to find her surroundings have changed to a squalid room filled with dirty cups, plates and broken furniture, but to the others the room looks the same. The male attendant, whose name is Altos, enters and realises that the illusion is no longer working on Barbara, who flees from his attempts to take her to a physician. Altos enters a room that is occupied by a group of brains with eye stalks living in jars. He says that Barbara is no longer under the control of the Mesmeron. The brains instruct him to find her and kill her and prepare the others for full enslavement. They also instruct him to punish the f- female attendant, Sabetha, for her failure. Altos brings the doctor and Ian to what they believe to be a highly advanced laboratory, but is actually a room full of more dirty old cups and plates. He returns to the brain room and they instruct him to assign the doctor, Ian and Susan, various servant roles and to find Barbara or else they will kill him for his failure. Barbara is hiding in the dungeons and she encounters Sabetha, who is in prison for her failures. Barbara tries to wake her from the illusion, but it is no use. Barbara notices that she is wearing one of the keys of the machine and deduces that she must be Arbertan's missing daughter. Altos enters and struggles with Barbara, but is knocked out when Sabata breaks a chair over his head. Barbara says that she must rescue the others, but promises to come back. She encounters Ian in the hallway, but he is fully under the control of the brains and brings her to them. They explain that they evolved beyond their bodies, but need others to perform their physical tasks for them, and so they enslave the rest of the populace of the city. They instruct Ian to kill Barbara as they will not be able to hypnotise her as she has seen the reality of the city. She fends him off and destroys the brain's life support systems, thus freeing the city and all of its inhabitants from their control. As the city is engulfed in a riot, the travellers regroup with Susan bringing Sabeta and Altos, who was also one of Arbertan's missing helpers. He says that he came with another named Ypren, who went on ahead to find the fourth key site, but he has not heard from him. 
The doctor says that he alone will search for Eprin, while the others go on to the next key location. Susan wants to go with him, but he says that she will be safer with the main group, and that she shouldn't be worried about him. He gives Altos and Sabeta their old travel dials, which he was able to find, and they agree to meet in one week's time at the third key site. Susan activates her dial before the others, and lands in a jungle filled with a terrible screaming. Episode 3, The Screaming Jungle The screaming suddenly stops, and the others arrive to find a distraught Susan. Barbara comforts her as Ian and the others investigate their surroundings. They think the next key is in a temple overgrown with dense vines and creepers. Ian suggests that they look around to find another way in. Barbara says that she and Susan will stay behind to see if they can find something to cut through the nearby doorway. Barbara asks Susan about the sound that she heard and Susan says that whatever it was, it was evil. As Barbara is looking at the doorway, one of the creepers begins to move up and tries to wrap itself around Susan's legs. Barbara helps her and crushes the creeper with a rock, but tells Susan that it must have fallen on her. As they take a look at the doorway, Barbara finds that she is able to make her way through quite easily and walks down the hallway to a large statue. Ian and the others return and Barbara calls out that she has found the key. As she takes her from the top of the statue, the arms close around her and then it rotates into a hidden compartment in the wall. Ian and Altos are too late to try and save her, but find the key that she dropped. Sabeta points out that maybe Barbara used her travel dial to escape and as they are discussing this possibility, they hear the statue return to its original position with no sign of Barbara. Altos says that either she managed to escape or she will be on the other side of the wall. Ian tells the others to go on to the next key site while he remains to look for Barbara. Altos and Susan go on ahead, but Sabeta drops the key. As she picks it up, she notices that it is a fake. Ian tells her to stick to the plan and go after the others to tell them what has happened. He goes to the statue and allows himself to be taken into the secret chamber. Inside, he comes across a statue of a knight wielding an axe and more overgrown foliage, but no sign of Barbara. He accidentally steps on a booby trap that activates the knight, and Barbara calls out a warning to him just in time. Ian tells her that the key was a fake and that they still need to find it. Barbara warns him, though, that the temple is rigged with more traps and they need to be careful. They try to force their way through a door, but it is no good. Ian goes to find something to pry the door open, and Barbara waits as more vines start to make their way down towards her. Suddenly the door opens, and she calls out to Ian, who says he will come once he has managed to untangle a picked axe that he found. Barbara enters the doorway, which triggers another trap. A weighted net falls on top of her, pinning her to the floor, as blades stuck in the roof slowly start to lower down towards her. Ian tries to take the pickaxe with him to rescue her, but it too is a trap, and bars lock him into the alcove. Just as the blades are about to hit Barbara, they retreat, and a dishevelled-looking man comes out from another doorway, and asks who they are and why they seek the key. She says that Arbatan sent them, and shows him the travel dial to prove it. He takes it from her to verify her claims. However, as he leaves, the vines attack him and begin to strangle him. Ian manages to break free from his confinement and rescues Barbara. Together they rescue the old man who tells him that they will need to leave as the jungle is attacking again. They urge him to tell the location of the key and he gives them a strange code before he dies and before they can make sense of it. They go into a room that he was pointing at as he died and inside they see a safe. They try the code to see if it is a combination but it doesn't work and so they set about searching the room inch by inch. Ian finds a journal the old man kept to log his experiments which talks about accelerating the destructive power of natural erosion. Suddenly, the screaming Susan heard earlier starts again, and the jungle starts to break into the room. They notice a label on a broken jar and realise that the code that the old man gave was actually a chemical formula, and they search for the correct jar. They locate the key and hurriedly jump to the next key site, which is in the middle of a snowstorm. Episode 4. The Snows of Terror Ian and Barbara pass out due to the extreme cold, but they are found by a man who brings them back to his cabin. He introduces himself as Vassor, a trapper that lives on the mountain, and he tells him that he brought him back to his cabin with the aid of a stranger, who was desperately searching for a pair of girls. They realise that this must be Altos, and Vassor informs them that he is most likely in the nearby village, which is three miles away. 
Ian asks Vassar to lend him some furs so that he can go to the village, but Vassar says that he requires payment as he can't trust that Ian will return. He asks for Ian's travel dial and Ian reluctantly agrees. Vassar gives him furs, a lantern and a travel pack. He promises to come back with the others or hopefully some news. In the cabin, Vassar and Barbara are finishing eating and they begin to clean up. Barbara opens one of the drawers and sees four travel dials and Sebastian's necklace with the keys on it. Vassar says that he took the item as payment for his assistance. Barbara says that he is lying and that when Ian comes back, he will have to answer for his actions. Vassar laughs and says that's if Ian comes back. Ian makes his way through the blizzard and he comes across Altos lying in the snow with his hands tied up. He frees him and discovers that the travel pack that Vassar gave him is actually full of meat, meant to attract the wolves that inhabit the mountain. Altos tells Ian that he got separated from the girls when they arrived and he encountered Vassar, who he forced to help him in his search for them. They hear the howls of approaching wolves and leave the meat for them as they race back to Vassar's hut to rescue Barbara. They arrive just in time as she fights him to let them in. They force him to lead them to the cave that he left the girls in. They arrive at the cave and see signs that the girls were there recently. Who they deduce must have gone deeper into the cave system. Vassar is reluctant to go further as he says that there are demons in the cave, but Ian forces them on. Susan and Sabeta are exploring deeper into the cave and encounter a giant chasm with a rope bridge running across it. On the other side is a chamber containing statues of knights, similar to the previous location. They flee the chamber and encounter the others, who have all crossed the bridge except for Vassar. As they are rejoicing their reunion, Vassar unties the bridge, trapping them on the other side. They decide to press on to find the key and hopefully find a way out of the cave. They re-enter the chamber and see the key is lodged in a block of ice in the centre of the group of statues. They find a pipe running into the block with a valve on it. Barbara turns it and they discover it is a steam valve that begins to melt the ice. While they are waiting, Ian and Altos bring some petrified tr- uh, tree trunks that they tie together to form a rudimentary bridge. Sabeta recovers the key, but the knights, who are actually frozen guardians and not statues, come to life and attack the group. Ian ushers everyone out of the chamber and stays behind to fight off the knights. Susan makes her way across the branch bridge to the other side and reconnects the, r- the rope bridge, allowing the others to escape. Ian disconnects the bridge after he crosses it, causing one of the knights to fall to his doom. They arrive back at Vassar's cabin and retrieve their travel dials and the other keys. The remaining knights have somehow managed to follow after them, and Vassar takes Susan hostage in an attempt to escape, but he is killed when a sword bursts through the door and into his back. The travellers jump to the next location as the knights crash into the cabin. At the next key site, Ian comes across the unconscious form of a man in a guard's uniform. He sees the key in a glass cabinet and attempts to open it, but is struck from behind by an unseen figure. The figure stages the scene so it looks like Ian attacked the guard, and then the figure steals the key. Episode 5. The Sentence of Death. Ian comes to and is immediately addressed by a seated figure behind him. He introduces himself as Taran, an interrogator for the city of Millennius, and asks Ian to tell him what happened. He tells Taran what he remembers before he was knocked unconscious, but Taran does not believe him and demands to know where he has hidden the key. Ian insists that he doesn't have it, so Taran informs him that he will be brought to the Guardian building to face formal murder charges. Taran informs him that the rules of their society dictate that it is guilty until proven innocent. He tells Ian that he can have someone act as his counsel, and Ian says that he must locate the doctor to represent him. Barbara is told that she and the others have been given permission to see Ian before the trial, and he is brought to see them. The doctor arrives much to everyone's joy, and he takes Ian aside to discuss what has happened before the trial. They are summoned to the tribunal, where Ian is sentenced to death in three days unless it can be proven that he is innocent. The doctor is given the floor to make his defence, but he says he cannot make an adequate defence without time to review all the facts. The tribunal agrees, and they postpone the hearing by two days. The doctor informs the group that the murdered man was Eprin, Altos's friend who went on ahead in the search for the keys. 
He tells them that he met Ebron and together they plan to get the key, but Ebron must have let slip his plans to someone who killed him for the key. The Doctor delegates tasks everyone, asking Altos and Sabetha to research murder cases in Millennius, while Susan and Barbara will serve as his detectives. They first interview Taron, who tells them that the scanners monitoring the room indicate that the missing key is not recorded as leaving the room. The only other people to come into the room were the relief guard, the building controller and the perimeter guard, and that Ian must be the killer and thief. The doctor excuses him and he decides to test the theory by recreating the crime. He hypothesizes that there was a third person in the room who killed Ypron and then hid when Ian came in, and that he avoided detection because he was above suspicion because he was in fact the relief guard named Aiden. Susan says that he should tell Taron, but the doctor says that he will need to prove the theory first and assigns him the task of going to the relief guard's home. They go to Aiden's house, but only to find his wife there at the moment. Through their questioning of her, they discovered that there would be a high reward for the person who found the key. Aiden returns and acts nervously around him. He nearly outs himself when Susan says that they know where the key is, but he manages to stop himself in time before he says that they couldn't possibly know. He orders them out of the house, after, and after they leave, they hear Aiden berate and beat his wife. Back in the tribunal building, the chief prosecutor receives a call that he takes in private. It seems that he is also involved in the conspiracy, as he instructs the person on the other end of the line to carry out a secret task. The trial recommences, and the chief prosecutor, Ison, continues to use the circumstantial evidence against Ian. The doctor takes the floor and says that the murderer is in the room, and he will prove it. He calls Sabeta to the stand, and she says that she is in possession of the key, as it was given to her by the man who killed Ypron. She says it was Aiden, who says that it's impossible, as she could not have found its location. He realises that he is out of himself, and attempts to flee, but is stopped by Barbara and Susan. He agrees to confess and reveal his co-conspirators, but he is shot and killed by an unseen weapon. The doctor reveals the quest he and the others are on to the tribunal, and that it is one of the other keys Sabeta showed the court. However, it is still not enough to convince them of Ian's innocence. Ison uses his closing statement to state that it is Ian who is the co-conspirator that Aiden was going to reveal, and the judges request the doctor give his closing arguments. Barbara is called away and given a note saying that there will be another death if they reveal the key's location. She, Altos and Sabeta discuss what this could mean for the case when a call comes in for Barbara. It's from Susan, who says that she has been kidnapped. Episode 6, The Keys of Marinus. Susan informs Barbara that her captors intend to kill her, and the call is disconnected. Barbara tells the others that they cannot tell the doctor or Ian, as they need to focus on the trial. She says that they would have to figure out how to rescue Susan and uncover the plot. They decide to go question Aiden's wife, Kala, to see if she can give them any information about the people Aiden may have been in contact with over the last few days. Once they arrive there, Kala breaks down in tears and says that she can't assist them, so they leave. Once they are gone, Kala starts to laugh and opens a room that Susan is held captive in. She taunts Susan and then gets a call from Ison, who tells her Ian is to be executed soon, as there is still no sign of the key. He also tells her to kill Susan. As they are returning to inform the doctor, Barbara realises that Kala must be involved, as she had made reference to the others speaking to Susan, but they had never actually mentioned having spoken to her on the phone. They return to the house just in time to stop Kala from killing Susan. Back in the courtroom, the doctor is contemplating Ian's fate when Ison comes over to give his condolences. Taron comes out and locks away the exhibits in the evidence cupboard, and then he goes to talk to the doctor. Barbara calls the courthouse and informs Taron and the doctor of Carla's part in the conspiracy, and that she was the one who killed Aiden using a hidden gun. Taron emerges from questioning her and informs the group that Carla has named Ian as his accomplice. Taron says that he doesn't fully believe her, but he needs the proof that she is lying. Susan mentions that she heard Carla on the phone with someone who said that he was going to collect the key from its hiding place that evening. The doctor rejoices as this is their opportunity to prove Ian's innocence. 
That night, a hooded figure enters the evidence room and goes to take the weapon that killed Ibram, as it was going to be tested to see who had previously wielded it. Suddenly, the figure is apprehended, and the doctor turns on the lights to reveal to everyone that it is actually Ison. He also reveals that the key was hidden in the head of the weapon. Atlas and Sabeta have gone on ahead to meet Arbitan, and the doctor and the others bid farewell to Taran. Back at the monolith, Altas has been captured by Yartek and the Vords, and demands to know where the final key is. Sabeta is brought into the room and Artek threatens to kill Altos unless she tells him where the final key is. Yartek uses their love for each other against him by threatening each of them that he will kill the other unless they reveal the key's location. Altos gives in and says that the Doctor has it. The others arrive back and the Doctor confirms that the force field around the TARDIS has been lifted and that they should deliver the last key to Arbitan. Ian and Barbara note that it's curious that neither Altos or Sabeta have come to meet them. As they are going down a corridor, the Doctor and Ian ambush a Vord and knock him unconscious. They agree to split up, with the Doctor and Barbara going to find Altas and Sabeta, while Ian and Susan go to find Arbitan. Ian and Susan enter the room with the conscience and see Yartek disguised as Arbitan, saying that he, they should not look at him because the radiation from the machine has disfigured him. He asks them to leave the key and that they should bring the Doctor and Barbara to him. While they are making their way down the corridor, Ian and Susan voice suspicions about Arbitan's strange behaviour. Barbara meets him and brings him to the cell where she and the Doctor located Altos and Sabetha. Ian reveals that he gave Yartek the fake key from their earlier travels, but Altos warns him that if it is entered into the machine, it will still activate it, but will not be able to control its power and the resulting overload will destroy the monolith completely. They manage to escape as Yartek enters the fake key, causing the machine to explode. Before they leave, the Doctor has a quick word with Sabeta and cautions her about entrusting the laws and justice of the planet to machines and tells her to carry out her father's work to try and maintain the peace on the planet. They bid farewell to their new friends and the TARDIS takes off. End of episode 6 and end of the story. Great recap as always, Paddy. Now that's the story recapped. How about we go over to Trish to go over some trivia notes. Trish? Thanks, Paddy. So, for this week's story, we have a returning writer, Mr. Terry Nation. We discussed Terry before, as he is the one who created one of, if not the most iconic Doctor Who monster, the Dalek. This is the first of only two stories Terry wrote for Doctor Who that are not about the Daleks. Terry loved the puzzle aspect of the story, so he and script editor David Whitaker decided on a series of mini-ventures that would take the crew to different destinations, so they could have different types of sets, and they were very, very keen on it being this series of mini-adventures. The director for this story was John Gorey, I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. This is his only Doctor Who directorial credit. Reportedly, he wasn't a big fan of the script, but he agreed to direct in order to advance his career. Good enough reason as any, I suppose. Yeah, I think so. The air date for this story was the 11th of April to the 16th of May in 1964. The Keys of Marinus was written to replace a different script, Doctor Who and the Hidden Planet, which was deemed problematic and required extensive rewrites. The tank top sweater vest thingy that Susan is wearing was actually knitted by Caroline Ford's mother. <laughs> it's a nice contribution to the wardrobe. We mentioned last week that people thought William Hartnell was on holiday during one of the episodes of Marco Polo since he only had one line in that episode. Well, that wasn't true last week. It is true in this story that during the filming of episodes three and four, William Hartnell did take a holiday, which is why the Doctor is not in those episodes. He'd been working non-stop from October to April, 
and he just needed a break which i think is well deserved mm-hmm. yeah i'd agree what's interesting though and this probably wouldn't happen in a lot of shows nowadays is that even though he wasn't in the episodes he did still receive on-screen credit for them the remaining cast would take holidays throughout upcoming stories as well so it wasn't just william getting special treatment some word origins for you so marinus originated from the latin term marinus meaning of the sea Morphoton is based on Morpheus, the Greek god of dreams, not the Matrix character, he's a different person. Millennius obviously comes from the term millennium, and Arbitan is based on the Latin word arbiter, meaning judge. Caroline Ford reportedly did not like how Susan was portrayed in this story. She felt she was written like a child and even described her character as being pathetic. A bit much, but okay. The Screaming Jungle was the subject of Doctor Who's first serious plagiarism charge. Robert Gould, who was another writer, complained to Donald Wilson, the head of serials at the BBC, that a story about plant life being the dominant evolutionary species on a planet had been something that he'd outlined to David Whittaker and that he felt had been plagiarised into The Screaming Jungle. Whitaker had to send a memo back to Wilson offering a defence against the charge and he was successful because his defence was based on the statement that Terry Nation had independently arrived at the use of vegetation as being hostile in the jungle while, and this is a bit mean to include, but Gould's idea was derivative of the Day of the Triffids anyway. (laughs) So kind of hinting at Gould, don't accuse other people of plagiarism when you yourself are plagiarising. Yeah, don't copy my copy. Surprisingly, even though the story contains an attempted rape on Barbara by Vassar, BBC Video released the story in 1999 with a U certificate. So for those who are not familiar with the British and Irish uh, rating system, U means it's universal, so it can be watched by any age group, which some people think was maybe not quite appropriate for this story. Yeah, PG would have probably been a better rating. Yeah, I think we'll get to that particular issue more when we get to the overall discussion. Let's talk about William Hartnell line flubs. (laughs) So William Hartnell, as we've discussed, is quite famous for his line flubs. However, there is one in this story that was not a line flub. In the part where the doctor says, I can't prove at this very moment, and then he stumbles and says, I can't improve at this very moment, that was actually written into the script by Terry Nation. No one knows why. It was a deliberate stumble of, I can't improve at this very moment. I mean, I can't prove at this very moment. That was deliberately written into the script. So for anyone who was chalking one up on the William Hartnell flubs tally board... Take that tally off. That wasn't a flub. That was in the script. In the original script, we do get an explanation for why the Doctor and Susan had been on Earth in 1963 at the start of An Unearthly Child. If you recall, there's a bit where Barbara asks the Doctor around having a screen that portrays in colour. And the Doctor says he has one, but it's not really working. Apparently, he had gone to the BBC to help get help repairing the scanner. And the BBC were not very helpful. (laughs) And apparently that's where they were on Earth in 1963. They wanted the BBC to help them fix their scanner and the BBC said no. How very meta. (laughs) Yeah. 
I can only wonder why I didn't make it in. <laughs> so, some guest actors. Arbitan is played by... I'm going to ruin his name. I always do this. Arbitan is played by George Kalouris. Kalouris. C-O-U-L-O-U-R-I-S. I think Kalouris is probably close enough to it. This is his only Doctor Who acting credit. However, he did do a lot of work on stage and screen in the 30s and 40s and was in several productions on Broadway, including his own production of Richard III. He was also a member of the Mercury Theatre, which people who are fans of theatre may know is the independent rep theatre company founded in New York by Orson Welles and producer John Houseman. Also, he may have been part of the War of the Worlds scare back in the 30s. Possibly. Possibly could have been. You devious bastard. (laughs) (laughs) Next, we have Robin Phillips as Altos. He was actually trained at the Bristol Old Vic, which is the same place where Sir Patrick Stewart was trained. And they were contemporaries. He was a very talented stage actor and also very talented director. And he even directed a musical version of Jekyll and Hyde in 1997 on Broadway, which is great. He was appointed an officer of the Order of Canada in 2005, which is a Canadian national order and the second highest honour for merit in the system of orders, decorations and medals of Canada and comes after the Order of Merit. Again, this is his only Doctor Who acting credit. Lastly, as Sabitha, we have Catherine Schofield. As far as I can see, no relation to Philip Schofield. She was a prolific TV actress who got her start in 1963, so not too long before appearing on Doctor Who. But again, this is her only Doctor Who acting credit. And just one little acting credit for myself is that if anyone ever thinks to look for anything that uh, Francis the Wolf, the guy who plays Vassar, is a good guy in, it's impossible. He's always been a scumbag. (laughs) Well, from my viewing of stuff anyway. Very good. Thank you once again, Trish, for the trivia notes. They're always interesting. No problem at all. So speaking of characters and our actors and people that played, how about we move on to the character discussion now? Very good. So each week, Paddy and I discuss the characters that appear in our story. Generally speaking, we discuss the Doctor, the companions and the villains. So Paddy, why don't you get us started with your thoughts on the Doctor in The Keys of Marinus? I have labelled this uh, story Law and Order Doctor Who. (laughs) Because, as you pointed out earlier on, he was absent for two episodes, but then the two episodes that he returns in, uh, he makes a huge impact in, I think. It's great seeing William Hartnell at like the the serious side of the Doctor, because as much as I love the gleeful uh, side of things, which he does have at certain points in the story, it's really good seeing him play the character, not angrily, but seriously, like looking to defend people, looking to defend his friends. And I think those are some of Vicky's finest acting moments as well. I also really enjoyed his little temper tantrum at the start with Arbitan, which essentially came down to a small child saying, give me back my toy. (laughs) What I I loved about that, though, is it's totally him having the same trick played on him that he played on the others at the beginning of the Daleks. Yeah. (laughs) Like, now you know what it feels like. Yeah. 
like just like when he gets into that whole uh, it kind of reminds you of Jim Carrey like you're in Batman Forever going Batman Batman you say uh, but I, 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 I that, that, that audio is going to translate really well into the podcast by the way oh ab- ab- absolutely there's either it's like is there a dog attacking him who knows what's going on in the background no but I think since, especially since um, Edge of Destruction and now moving into Marco and now definitely here, uh, William Hartnell to me, like, he comes across as definitely hitting his stride and becoming more comfortable in the role, at least on screen anyway, whatever about the issues he had in the background with you know too many lines or anything like that. He's really giving a really good powerhouse performance in the story, I think. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think in this story... And we kind of got it in Marco as well, though you can't, sadly, because of the way Marco now survives, um, you can't really enjoy it to quite the same extent. But I think in this story, we really get who William Hartnell's doctor is. He's very intelligent, very keen observationist, but he also has this impishness and this teasing nature. Like you see it with um, Ian at the beginning where he's like, why aren't you wearing any shoes? Why are you wandering with no shoes on? <laughs> you know, he knows that Ian gave Susan his shoes, but he says it just to be funny and just to tease them, which is great. But we do also get, like you said, that serious nature, and particularly like when he sat outside the courthouse or the courtroom, rather, waiting on news of Ian, and all he can do is just sit there, head down. And you really see how much he cares. Yeah. Which is great. You know, people sometimes, and we don't want to jump the timeline too much. I'm sure we'll discuss this at a later stage. But people sometimes give Hartnell's Doctor a lot of grief. And I don't know if it's that they haven't watched the episodes or maybe they only watch certain ones. But they make assumptions about his character. Mm. And that's not who he was. Do you know, he's not... A sexist prick. Yeah. He's a genuinely lovely granddad. Do you know that that's who he is? He's a granddad by nature and he's like I said, he's a bit impish, he's got a teasing quality. He can throw his toys out of the pram when he doesn't get what he wants. Yeah. But he's also very intelligent and very caring. And the one bit I really liked, and you probably picked up on this as well, is we see in this story his unwavering faith in Ian. Yeah. The minute they get captured, he's like, it's fine because Ian will find us. It's what he does. <laughs> yeah. And the doctor does not doubt it for one second. And the idea of him being guilty of murder, I love that we don't see the doctor in particular question this even once. There is no question that Ian is innocent, which if you take Again, you know, we're looking at a post-Edge of Destruction show here. Mm-hmm. But if you look at pre-Edge of Destruction, we may have seen some questions about maybe Ian did do it. Yeah. And I love that it's not even questioned once. Because I think in this regards, it's... You have... Up, up until, like you, as you said, like pre-Edge of Destruction, the whole thing was that the Doctor couldn't trust ian and barbara fully because there was always that overarching thing of they want to go home so they may do anything in order to go home 
Whereas after the adventure with Marco and going into this one, it, as you said, it's a case of just complete faith that Ian wouldn't kill anyone because even if he wanted, to, even if he wanted to get home as desperately as he does, Ian wouldn't stoop to killing someone to do it. Yeah, which I love. And like I said, it's very quintessential Hartnell Doctor in this story, which I absolutely love. I also love that obviously it was written as a way to give William Hartnell two weeks off. But I love the idea that the Doctor's like, there's a civilized society on this planet. Okay, you guys go do all the pickupy stuff. I'm gonna be off with the civilized society. And like his excuse for Susan not going with him, <laughs> I sort of got the sense that Granddad wants a holiday. Yeah. <laughs> away from you. Yeah. For a couple of days. I want people on my intellectual level. Sorry. Goodbye. <laughs> yeah, but no, that was great though. Absolutely, it was. And I suppose we've talked about Ian a fair bit in our kind of talk about the Doctor there, so how about we move on to Ian as the first companion? Yeah, sure. I think, again, for Ian, you know, this is going to be something that we're going to say over and over again, and it can probably be made into a drinking game at some point. <laughs> Ian really does take charge in this story. So from episodes three, for episodes three and four, it's really Ian taking charge. Mm. What I like in this story, though, is that his protective nature and his being in charge, it gets talked about. You know, Barbara and Susan do discuss it. And I get that they said that, you know, sometimes he's very protective and Susan sort of quirks at Barbara. So sometimes you like to rebel against his protective nature. Like. <laughs> yeah. But they do confirm that they do appreciate it. It's not seen as, oh my god, he's so overbearing and boorish. It's, he's so protective. Yeah. Sometimes, though, you just have to do what you've got to do. And it's interesting as well to see that on like the on the second half of the story that the roles are sort of reversed because Ian's the one that's put into the situation of helplessness. Yeah, that's a really good call. And it's actually the one thing from Ian's character in the story that I didn't like was... In the back part of the story, Ian says very little Mm. while he's standing trial. But I would have liked to have seen more from him about Ian's mental state. Like he's being accused of murder and he's knowing he's he's about to be killed. And all we really get are a couple of worried looks at a clock. Mm -hmm. And I just would have liked to have seen more. Now, maybe that's how Ian would react in that situation? I don't know, though. Well, like, I suppose it's a case of you've been told that you're in a society that it's guilty until proven innocent and you only have one person that can speak to you for your case. Maybe he's just kind of expending all his energies on just remaining calm as opposed to trying to make... Because like, he, he, maybe he feels that if he was to say something or, you know, get, like, narky while he's in holding... It might reflect badly against his case and inhibit the doctor from being able to help him. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe, maybe what I was looking for was like a scene just between the doctor and Ian, mm-hmm. where they're talking it out. Yeah. Do you know? Because he just seems a little bit placid um, during the whole thing. Just, just in my opinion, anyway. Yeah, like. Ugh. I suppose like he can become across as placid, all right, and it would have been maybe one of those uh, like a prisoner visitation scenes might have been a bit expansive for him. But I suppose maybe this is another way to take a look at Ian in the sense of he, 
there are times like where he can be just human and not the action man, and it's like I'm sort of screwed here. Yeah, that's a good way of looking at it. Yeah, because like everyone has their moments of defeat, I suppose, and like up until now, Ian has been the man of, as you said, man of action, take charge. We can do this sort of thing. And when you're trying to hold that together for everyone, when everyone's not around, you know, you can, I suppose, maybe feel a bit sorry for yourself. Yeah, the other scene that I actually forgot was in this story. So I'm going to give a little bit of insight here and jump the timeline for a second. So you know that one of my um, favourite scenes in all of Doctor Who and one of the most chilling for me comes in Tom Baker's era. Mm-hmm. And it's in Terror of the Zygons when Harry... Well, Harry, quotation marks, goes after Sarah with a pitchfork. And I love that scene. And you and I have discussed it ad nauseum in the past. We get a similar feel in the second episode when Ian goes to strangle Barbara. Yeah. And again, the same with Ian and the Doctor. I would have liked to have a scene of the two of them talking it out. And maybe even the Doctor being like, of course you're innocent. I would never think that you were anything else. I kind of would have liked to have seen Ian deal with the fact that he nearly strangled his best friend. Yeah, especially such a short space of time as well. It was a powerful moment and I would have loved to have seen him deal with it. Um, yeah, I, I mean, like, I guess that some of those like you know, nice little kind of... in. Uh, introspective moments about what they had done while under the influence would have been nice to see but I think that this was such a breakneck pace you know story that I think it might have slowed it down a small bit if they did that yeah that makes sense and I guess it's one of those things that I wonder in the future will they ever come back to it or will we ever see instances like this again where we might get a slightly more character driven response who knows? It's it's not like we've got like what fifty odd years of stuff to get. <laughs> well, what I suppose with these guys, like two odd years, but you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. No, I get what you mean. Yeah, I th- I think maybe you're right. Maybe it would have slowed the episodes down too much. So, how about we move along to Barbara now? Of course. Do you want to go first with Barbara, or do you want me to go first? Uh you go first, and then I'll follow on. Okay, I am loving Barbara more and more. With each episode that I watch. Bear in mind, I loved her before. But now sort of seeing... Because I, I watched the stories out of order before. So now watching them in order. I'm just coming to appreciate her a lot more. I know the only reason why the... Sondisks or whatever they called them. um, In episode 2. I know the only reason that it didn't work on her. Was because she moved in her sleep. But mm. I love her in that second episode. I love the acting. I love the strength she had. Her having to fight Ian off, like we said, when Ian tried to strangle her. Yeah. It's so hard to watch. But in a good in a good character story driven way. Because like up until this point, Ian has been her protector. Ian has always been there to make sure that she's safe and she's okay and to have that pulled away from her but for her to step up like she didn't wallow in it she was scared but she fought back 
and protected herself from the one person that was meant to protect her. And I thought that was really, really well done. And I love that she so easily was able to brush him off. It's like, she is stronger <laughs> than you think. Yeah. Well, like, like sometimes you might kind of chalk it up to the um, the strength of desperation or you know the adrenaline burst but overall barbara is a very hands-on companion like we saw that back in the daleks when she like actually helped some of the uh the thals attack an actual dalek you know and push them around and all that sort of stuff yeah and like in the episode that follows that so the screaming forest or whatever it's called i've forgotten it now you said it a while ago um but in that following episode we do see a bit more of quote-unquote screaming barbara Mm. but we it's counterbalanced with the fact that she is headstrong and she will you know rebel as susan said against ian and just go off and do her own thing that's not to say though that when she's in trouble she doesn't admit that she's in trouble and won't call for him to come help her. She's not stupid, like. No, it's a, it's, it's. There's time things that Barbara can handle by herself, and then there's time to bring in. I won't say the big guns, but we'll just say bring in the guns. <laughs> yeah, I think I think overall over this six episode story, we get to see a lot of her. We have she has some really strong moments. So episode two was this really strong moment. She had strong moments in episode three. Um, episode four with the Vassar. And we'll get into more detail with him later. But she did hold her own in a really big way. And then in five and six, we got to see her being a detective and sleuthing and figuring things and figuring things out. It's it kind of reminds you of small, but like you know, just really weirdly, quantum leap. Like each episode, she seems to have a different skill set. <laughs> yeah, but they all feed nicely off each other because it's all about her observation skills and her ability to think her way out of a situation which i like yeah like there's two really good moments of barbara that kind of really strike out to me in this or like stand out to me in this and this one is as we said the vassar thing where like if anyone goes back and watch this episode you know you'll see it for yourselves but for a descriptor of vassar he is like a big mountain man he's a really intimidating presence and she does stand up to him and like that's a really really cool thing to see the other thing is when she destroys the life support systems for the the brains and the jars she just picks up a, a piece of wood and just starts swinging and she actually shatters like some of their glass cabinets as well and it's it's that she's afraid but she's determined as well and it's just like those wild swings it's re you might think that like all right it's just this is what the script says but it's actually a really good acting moment from Jacqueline Hill as well yeah I think this is probably i mean edge of destruction was good for jacqueline hill she had a lot to work with but that was a shorter story marco polo sounded good but unfortunately we don't get to enjoy the visual at the moment so i think in terms of the five stories we've had a chance to look at this is by far barbara's strongest in my opinion and and as you said that's just the ones we've got to look at because not to I don't want to jump the line time too much, but next week we've got a great Barbara showcase coming up, but that we'll discuss that next week. Oh yeah. I can't wait for that one. <laughs> um, cool. So on to Susan. Yeah. And I hate to admit it, but I agree with Caroline Ford on this one. Susan was so badly done in this story. 
at some point she's almost a waste of space. It's like, why is she even there? She doesn't add any value. She has one moment in the entirety of the story and that's when she's the one that crosses like the ad hoc bridge that Ian and Altos created to get to the other side to bring up the rope bridge again. But other than that, she's kind of a non-entity and that's a shame because she goes from being a non-entity to the the typical view of like you know the screaming companion in the sense of she can't really seem to fend for herself when the other guys aren't there and then it goes to being like the kidnap victim and it just seems that we're like with the doctor and with Barbara and Ian they're all capable of holding their own and they're all capable of holding a scene or scenes by themselves but when it comes to Susan unfortunately that's not the case so as far as we've seen and I feel a bit bad for her in that regards yeah and even that scene where she crosses the ice bridge that could have been given to anybody yeah it wasn't specifically Susan and it's unfortunate because there's so much good in her character that to see it sort of sidelined and you know she's so clingy first to the doctor and then with Barbara sort of taking on like a mothering role for her mm. and there's a one line and I nearly put my hand through the screen well nearly got off the couch walked to the TV and put my hand through the screen and that's when the doctor leaves at the end of episode 2 and we know he's going to be gone for three and four. And Altos... No, it's... In episode three, it's when Altos, Sabitha and Susan continue on and Ian stays behind to find Barbara. Mm. And Altos is like, I will be your guardian, Susan. I was like... She doesn't... Yeah, she's 16 years old, but like I think they play her too young in this story. Yeah. Given, given some of the stuff that Susan has done like in previous stories I I would have thought that by this stage now that they could have like maybe allotted like an episode of the story like a six part story that was designed to build characters they could have allotted at least one episode where she had the standout moment yeah I mean her being alone with Sabitha in episode four mm-hmm. there was great potential there for Susan to sort of to be the one to take care of somebody else. Given like her experience, her like we'll say universal experience, I won't say worldly experience, but her universal experience and the dangers that she's been in, that would have been a moment for her to shine as opposed to giving the showcase to Sabitha. Yeah, and even in the previous episode, um, when they're in the forest, she says she rec- that she's heard the shrieking noise before. She recognises it as something. Now, to me, it kind of sounded a little bit like the TARDIS, which was a bit weird. But I'm like, where did she hear this before? I want to I know more about that. You know, maybe Susan and Barbara should have gone through and then the others jumped onto the ice yeah. area. Um, I just think it was, for six episode story, she didn't really get a look in, which is unfortunate. And we mentioned Sabitha, so I suppose we could take a quick look at our sort of story companions for this story, which are Sabitha and Altos. Mm-hmm. So what did you think of our story companions this week? 
so Altos in this regards I kind of lump him in with Susan a small bit because I think he's just there to really make up the numbers he doesn't really have a huge lot of contributions that I, I think and again like the only, the only thing that I when I think of Altos I can think of is just the actor that plays him who seems very kind of upper class English and that's that's all the only thing and I'm not saying anything bad about upper class English but that's the only thing, that's the only striking thing about the whole story is that Altos comes across as a very upper class English person I, I didn't really buy into him as to being an actual character in the story which again I suppose is a shame for the the work of the act the, the actor put in but Sabit on the other hand then maybe it's the fact that she's like Arbitan's daughter or I, I have no idea but she's definitely the, the stronger and the more engaging of the two like she as we said she's the one that reassures Susan in the cave um, like so she's like calm cool and collected uh, like she's the doctor's witness or like the doctor's you know like fake witness uh, during the trial and she's up there not a bother to her at all and as well back when Yartek has Altos and Savita like held captive she's more than willing to like sacrifice herself for you know the good the greater good that uh, the Vords don't get the keys now I know Altos has like big romantic moment of like saying no I'll tell you what you want please don't hurt the woman that I love again like I suppose like, it would be it's kind of interesting to see that sort of thing flipped yeah I think for me Sabita was definitely the stronger of the two um, even at the end Altos kind of screwed it up you know she had this plan of pretending he wasn't important in the hopes that they'd just leave him alone but because of the way he was acting, they realized that no, he's really important to her, so we can use him as leverage. Which, you know, it was interesting to have the male companion used as leverage yeah. rather than the female companion. So yeah, I found her a lot nicer. I, the way she was portrayed, um, like some of the acting choices, just in terms of her manner of speech and things, I maybe wouldn't have agreed with, but didn't take me out of the story. It's just I found it a little bit odd. Altos, though, I mean. My first note about Altos is Altos is creepy. Now that made sense. <laughs> that made sense while they were in Morphoton and while they were being controlled by the brains. When they leave though, he's still creepy. Like in the first scene where like he's no longer under the brain's control, he still doesn't blink. <laughs> For like the entire duration of the shot being on him, which is a good 30 to 40 seconds, he still doesn't blink. And I'm like, okay, you're creepy. And there's the way, I don't know if it's the fact that it's the sort of, like the British upper classness combined with the fact that he's meant to be a servant. And it's this balance of the two that somehow just came across as creepy. And like I said, you know, I'll be your guardian, Susan. I was just like, ugh, <laughs> don't do that. Cool shiver. Yeah, I do have a question about Altos and Sabita, though, and their mm -hmm. questionable intelligence. Right. So we find out in episode five that the whole group, so the Doctor and the others, were in that city for a couple of days before we catch up with them. Because they had time to plan the op with Eprin and all that kind of stuff. Why are Sabitha and Altos still wearing the rags that they were wearing in Morphoton? Like, his clothing choice is nowhere near appropriate. He's wearing a skirt that barely covers his arse. And 
her clothes aren't much better. I'm like, you've been in this highly advanced cultural, like culturally advanced city for days. Change your clothes. Well, you can't really say too much about that because isn't Ian still wearing the Chinese clothes he had from Marco Polo throughout this entire story? But he's not from this planet. Yeah, but like at the but at the at the same time, I don't think any of them have any form of currency on them. Yeah, but like Eprin is Altos's friend. Surely Eprin had a spare pair of pants for the love of God. <laughs> at least Ian was wearing suitable clothing that covered all of him. Do you know Eprin's just going around with his arse out? <laughs> It's like, and apparently he loves Sabita, but he's perfectly happy for her to still be dressed in rags. Like they go, they go to court, they go to court, still wearing rags. And I'm like, it's just, it's just, it's a small thing. But it's the small things that sort of make you question people's intelligence. It's the new, new clothing style on Marinus, homeless chic. (laughs) So how about we now transition from the light side of things into the dark side of things and go over the villains? Indeed. So. For the villains, so the the primary villains of the story, even though we only get them in like episodes one and episode six, are the Vord. Yeah. Who look like BDSM Teletubbies. <laughs> That's because of like the little weird antenna thing that's part of the, the suit, yeah. Yeah, they're in these like, they're meant to be, I assume, rubber, but they're in these like leather body suits. Yeah. With these weird antennas that look a little bit like the Teletubby antennas. To be honest, I just found them funny and not especially threatening. Well, in the first episode, I disagree because the, the how the whole thing is set up, like, you know, with the trap doors and with Arbitan struggling with Arbitan making it look like there was more than one of him around the place. And like this weird sort of almost ninja-esque fight between the few words and Arbitan. I actually thought their wetsuit apparel kind of lent itself to that mystique. That they, they looked like assassins fighting with temple guardians and like that kind of thing I thought was cool. But by the end of it, when you see Yartek and I lump Yartek in with the words overall because for being this huge global villain, the one that kind of brought Marinus' societies nearly to its knees, he just seems like just another guy. He like He's not overly intimidating. There's nothing really memorable about him. Like, if they had wanted to kind of really build up how evil he was, maybe they should have done, like, just random clips of him throughout the entire story. Even have him mentioned throughout the entire story. Yeah. Because he doesn't really get mentioned by, like, no one in more... Like, the brains don't mention him. Vassar doesn't mention... Like, none of the other villains mention him. And as well, this is, like, one of those... uh, This is, like, uh, I suppose, unusual for a Doctor Who story in that we get to see the planet as a whole. So like each like you know we get to we move to different continents we move to different countries where like they all have their own customs and that kind of stuff. So like you know for example the Morphotons, we have no way of knowing that they were very similar to Millennius and from the the style of the clothing and the architecture they weren't they were very different. I think having each society's own views of the Arctic and the Vords would have been kind of interesting. Yeah, I think the one thing where I think my opinion of the Vord sort of differed from yours in terms of their threat level and how much I enjoyed or didn't enjoy them is I felt they acted too slowly like physically their movements when they were fighting were too slow you know if they're going for the ninja-esque movements 
had they been faster i probably would have gotten over the funny look of them a lot quicker Mm. but like when they're going to stab someone like even like in the final episode when they're creeping up on ian one of them creeps up on ian and the doctor goes to hit him with his walking stick he's so slow in his movement now maybe it's he's trying not to be heard but it just makes them look a bit ridiculous to me I think had their movements been faster and more accurate and more determined, I probably would have gotten on board with them a lot better. I usually use, like, how I usually kind of uh, measure those fights is I measure them up against the Gorn fight in Star Trek. If anything can move faster than that fu- that fight scene, then look, it's it's a it's a masterpiece. <laughs> but that's <laughs> getting into... a pretty low bar. <laughs> well, like, 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 oh, we're moving franchises here, but like that, that's my measuring stick. Is it better than the Gorn fight? Yes. Okay. <laughs> So that was the board. We're not going to go through all of them in every episode, but just to give some highlights, brains in jars. What were your thoughts on the brains? So that type of thing I do enjoy. Like I enjoy like this concept of beings that have surpassed the need for physical bodies and their mental abilities are holding everyone in check. I think it was kind of cool. But the eye stalks with the eyeballs at the end of them, I thought was a bit silly, especially seeing as how like they radiated up as opposed to hanging down. It kind of just reminded me of like, malicious slugs yeah my question was why did they need eyeballs i don't know they're meant to be like creepy brain things Mm. like what they reminded me of the first time because when we see them first you see them from the back do you know yeah which which is a good shot choice by the way (laughs) shoot them from the back so they just look like brains and it looks like there's something coming out of them but you don't know what that is there's Mm. like the two stalks and they reminded me of do you remember the brains in jars that were in sabrina the teenage witch vaguely they were kind of reminding me of that. There's also another brain Doctor Who story that will come later that yeah. they reminded me a little bit of that as well. <laughs> but it's when they pan around and you see the two little stalks with the little eyeballs on it. I was just like, why? Like, just leave them as the brain. Just the brain in the jar was fine. But the minute you add the eye stalks, it kind of ruins it. But like, I loved that episode of mm. this story. I loved that micro adventure or mini adventure. And again, I, I'm a big fan as well of the sort of superior intellectual being that transcends the need for a physical body and and stuff like that so they were really good in that respect just shoot them from the back guys just one thing as well about those sort of scenarios uh, especially in like television or in movies it really really gives a good opportunity for the actors because i love the whole trapped in the illusion scenario where one person sees reality and the others don't so it kind of really changes their acting dynamic with people that was amazing yeah if I had to pick a favourite out of all six episodes, it's that one. Of, of, of all the six mini-adventures, that, that was my favourite. That is a very strong contender. I'd probably go with uh, four, actually moving on to the next villain. Uh, but mm. I'd, I'd probably... That is a really... I That is my second favourite of the entire six. But episode four with Vassor is probably my favourite. Okay, so what do you like about Vassor? Or what did you think of Vassor? I think liking him is a strong term uh, yeah <laughs> right uh i appreciate i like the episode because there's an awful lot happening in it and again it's a really good showcase for barbara because not uh not to sp- as i mentioned earlier on about the actor that he always plays a scumbag and that's because he's got big bushy eyebrows and a very sinister face it's a really really good episode because i've kind of been like i'm a bit into kind of you know the shows about serial killers and movies about serial killers and that kind of stuff and uh, Vassor is one of those he is a serial killer by his whole thing of that he leaves people stranded 
uh, under the pretense of helping them and he doesn't directly kills them but he puts them into the scenario which they will more likely end up dead but also there is the I think it's a very brave subject to touch in essentially a what was a children's television show was the implication that he is going to force himself on Barbara yeah and I might address that in a bit more detail when we're doing our overall look at the story Mm. because I think it feeds into a bigger theme in this story that I wasn't quite aware of going into it I think Vassar Vassar gave me the creeps from the beginning yeah like before you find out anything about how he'd seen Altos already he gave me the creeps from the beginning the way he looks down on them at the start is creepy he is clearly someone who's very comfortable with what he has done Mm. and like you said he has clearly done it many many times before the fact that he doesn't even try to hide his intentions with Barbara like even before Ian leaves he's kind of being a pervy bastard towards her like and yeah he lulls Ian into a bit of a false sense of security but you know the minute Ian's gone he's immediately playing house with her yeah they're sitting down to dinner. Oh, I'll wash these. You clean that up there. And it's like, oh my God, that's so, so creepy and disturbing. But for a creepy and disturbing plot point and for a creepy and disturbing character, they did it really well. It gave me the creeps. Like, Oh, they did it fantastically. And again, as I said, that actor, he's really good at playing that role. He's, uh, And it, that section of the story, I think, is really good. Uh, I also like the secondary section, which is like the... Um, the ice cave with um, the frozen guardians because I love stuff like that when statues come to life after stuff is triggered and it's like a fight to the death like I recently rewatched like the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers movie and like you got that section where like the statues come to life but that that was my favourite uh, episode of this story and I think Vassor is an interesting villain in the sense of he 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 doesn't directly kill people he puts themselves into a scenario in which they will be killed and he probably thinks in his own head that again I didn't do anything wrong yeah and like he'll take anything he can get so like he has spurs but he he doesn't loan them out and in fairness you know objectively speaking it is his livelihood he's not going to give away his yeah products free of charge but he picks up on the little things that are important mm. like from Susan and Sabitha he didn't just take their travel dials he also took the keys because he realised they were important he could have just taken the travel dials and left at that but he took this other thing as well Ian didn't carry anything else that was important so he only took Ian's travel dial Yeah. for the last two episodes are to say that they're the villains is probably the wrong way of putting it but we have the group of people trying to steal the key and framing Ian. To be honest, I think they were the weakest. They were like, you'd expect to see it on like something like Law and Order or something. (laughs) Yeah. Like I've, I've labeled them the conspiracy and I think it's a case of they're villains, villains. They are villains by circumstance in the sense of they had been planning to probably steal the key and then return it again for a big reward but and Ian just came along and they were like, aha, perfect. Now we have our actual scapegoat here. One thing that I did notice about them and I thought it was an interesting kind of dynamic is that like a- Aiden, the the guard, 
uh, like he's clearly a non-entity as such like he's just a kind of he's a patsy for them that if they ever if the the investigators ever got close they he would take the fall but i think it's interesting that like Ison, the chief prosecutor and Aiden's wife kala i get this impression that they were like having an affair oh totally and i also get the impression like that they're like they're both alphas and if like the situation i'd love to see what would happen if there ever came down a scenario where they realized that it had to be one or the other and see which one would betray the other one fast enough yeah i think they're the three of them together so aiden kala and i've forgotten his name Ison. yeah like i said they're characters you'd expect to see on law and order or csi or any sort of police procedural program they're you know an archetype of they fit the archetype for that but they do fit it quite well it's portrayed very well i just didn't find them particularly interesting because we've seen those types of characters a million times over i do agree with you though that aiden was the fall guy he was always meant to be the fall guy kala and eisen are definitely having an affair and they have done for years in my opinion (laughs) yeah they're very familiar with each other is the sense that i got and they know each other quite well and i think had ian not turned up they probably would have run the same plan but it would have been kala and eisen without telling aiden would have had aiden take the fall for the death of apron and it would have been the exact same episode but with aiden instead of ian yeah you get this impression like Aiden was like, hey guys, look, we have another fall guy. And they're like, shite. So the Keys of Marinus has been an interesting story. Many, many adventures, lots of characters, both good and bad. Paddy, what was your opinion of the story as a whole? I really, really enjoyed this story because... The way that Doctor Who has been kind of done up until now uh, that we've seen it is that it seems like it's a imagine like a huge RPG that they're moving on for, for the next quest, the next quest. And like they have their end goal of trying to get Ian and Barbara back to 1963. And every every episode, like every episode has essentially been an occurrence and an adventure. But to get to this one now where it's lots of different, different mini adventures, it feels like almost like when you're playing a video game and you do the, the optional side quests. And like that's what this kind of feels like is that it's the side questy part of their their adventure. I loved it because we got to see some really really good character development from the Doctor Ian and Barbara. Uh, you got to see them as you like you kind of said that before you used to lump kind of Ian and Barbara in together, whereas on the rewatch they're two completely separate entities. Like they both have their strengths, their weaknesses. They work well together, but they work just as well apart. Yeah. Again, some great stuff with the Doctor. Like yo, know, he's come on. Like Hartnell is perfectly hit his stride and now he is like like Usain Bolt marathoning his way or sprinting his way into the role. He's just gotten so comfortable with it. And you can see why he became the, the beloved person that he actually was or the beloved character that he was back then. As I said earlier on, I do like the fact that we've arrived on an alien planet and we get to explore it. We get to see that not every person on it is the same not every culture is the same the different viewpoints like i would love to have known like what a justice system was like other other than millennials because the millennials as we said it's like you know guilty until proven innocent the things that i would not really i things i don't really like about this particular episode are as we've mentioned susan 
like if you're going to do if you're going to take time to develop the characters or the main characters do all of them not just a handful of them or in, in this case like three quarters like if it had been only two of them you'd be kind of going right fair enough but like with the fact that it's three of them are really developed and one isn't uh, it's a bit of a kick in the teeth i think yeah and it's a shame and as we mentioned earlier on like the fact that Yartek who is initially made up by Arbitant to be like uh, this all conquering monster he's just a bit of like you know it almost feels like a red herring it's just like really was this was the guy that you were all so terrified of so yeah like I think that's the one thing that kind of hurt us a small bit was the fact that there was no really overarching big bad so what was your score out of five so my score out of five with everything taken into account was it I've actually given it four out of five very good. So, my take on it, mm-hmm. and this is where our listeners are going to realise that you remember more about my life than I do. Yeah. <laughs> this was the first William Hartnell story I saw. I think we established that a few weeks ago. Yeah, I actually bought it for you for your birthday, I think. Yeah, see, this is what I was trying to remember. I was trying to remember if you bought me this for Christmas or my birthday, they're quite close together, because you wanted me to watch The First Doctor. Yeah. Am I remembering my own history correctly? That is true. Like you, because yeah, like we had both watched uh, New Who. I had watched a bit more classic than you. You had watched the majority of Tom's run with Sarah, and I had recently just said I'm going to start from the very start and work my way forward. So I got you, and I knew that you had been interested in classic as well. So I got you uh, the only first Doctor story I could find. Yeah, thank you, HMV, for the keys of Marnus. I can't remember what my reaction was to the story when I first saw it because this was for probably my 21st or my 22nd birthday. This is like 11 years ago. Mm-hmm. But I do know that I kept watching William Hartnell after you got me The Keys of Marinus. So clearly I liked it at the time. Watching it now, I do really like it. I think it is a great science fiction story. It brings it together a lot of the traditional science fiction elements you know it has mind control it has you know going to freezing cold places and nearly freezing it has creepy forests it has you know people you know being accused of a crime they didn't commit all the things that we've seen in star trek and stargate and like you know all other science fiction programs it has all of it in one story it does. It really does. Which is great. Overall, I gave it a 4 out of 5 as well. Mm. So, we match on this one. The reason why I docked it a point. One, there was, like we said, the development of Susan. I I completely agree with you. I think when you have six stories that were each a mini-adventure, one of them could have been focused around Susan and her abilities. I think that was... An oversight that wasn't necessary. The other thing was, like I said, I would have liked to have seen more emotion from Ian around potentially killing Barbara and being accused of murder and going to be killed. Hmm. Though I do accept what you were saying, though, that I would have slowed it down. The other thing, though, where it lost a point because it made me feel uncomfortable is... And I don't think you and I have discussed this before because I would remember this conversation if we had. Yeah. The violence towards women in this story. Hmm. So we have Ian attempting to strangle Barbara. Yeah. 
we have the implied intent to rape Barbara. Mm -hmm. And then I never really understood. I think at the end of the episode, I kind of got the sense that she staged it. But if you're watching these week on week, there is a suggestion that Aiden hit his wife. Yeah. And that there's a domestic violence element there. Now, it may be that Kala hit Aiden and screamed because she knew that the people were listening at the door. Mm. But there is an implied domestic violence situation there. And like, I suppose, yeah, given, as we said, that Kala seems to be the the alpha in that scenario, that it probably wouldn't be a stretch of the imagination that she would either beat him and then stage it to look like she was the one being beaten. And um, yeah, again, I suppose back when I first watched it, I I never really picked up on that. Yeah, and I just, I think, had it been one of those things, hmm. I probably wouldn't mind. But, you know, it just seemed that there are a lot of violence towards women. And I'm not usually one of those people to get on a feminist soapbox. You know, you know me, I'm not really that type of person yeah. anyway. But I couldn't not see it in this. And hmm. I can only imagine being a kid in the 60s and watching this what you know what would you what would the family conversation be like afterwards for any of this we also on the flip side so there's the violence towards women component which i mean the whole thing with vassar just sort of makes me a bit sick to be honest yeah the other side though is there's a lot of death in this story yeah more so than i suppose the previous ones or like there's Oh, 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 what, like, it's not even that there's more death, but the circumstances surrounding the deaths of the people are they're very, they're a lot more varied. Like, cause in Daleks we saw you know some of the Thals dying, but that was due to a, a fight for their life, essentially a fight for their existence. In Marco Polo, we see them trying to defend themselves again from Tagana's uh, machinations, whereas here, yeah, like you've got the struggle between Arbitan and the Vord. But then you've got the the thing with, you know, Vassar leaving people to die in these horrible circumstances. And then you've got, like, the, I suppose, the criminal conspiracy in episodes four and five that result in Ephraim and Aidan's death and could very well have ended in Ian's execution as well. So, uh, yeah, actually, looking back on it, it is fairly much of a dark episode. Yeah, it's a lot darker than I seem to remember. And maybe it's because I've... Like I watched it twice. I watched it once through, and then I watched it on a slightly, slightly stoppy, starty motion to take my notes and stuff. Mm-hmm. But the other thing as well is that with Vassar, as much as I hate him and he gives me the creeps, he just makes my skin crawl. Mm. His death was completely unnecessary. So it's implied that he dies, that the ice guards kill him yeah. when everyone else jumps away. But we also, it's also implied that. When they're going to the cave to find Sabitha and Susan, that Vassor is at Ian's mercy. Mm. And that's why he's guiding them up there. You know, they're like Vassar or Ian and Altos are controlling him. They're keeping him as a prisoner, essentially. Why didn't they bring all of their stuff with them? They left the t- the, um, the travel the time dials, dials and the yeah. keys in Vassar's lodge. I can't figure out why other than the writer wanted to kill Vassar off in a way that doesn't require Ian 
or any of our heroes to be the one to kill him and mm. while you know there is some sick pleasure to be found in knowing that a creepy perverted attempted rapist is going to be killed his death wasn't necessary the story could have continued on exactly as it was without that part to it do you know like if they wanted to do the whole thing with the ice warriors going after them and the bridge collapsing have them put the keys down somewhere and then realize oh crap the keys are on the other side of the gorge like there was other ways around it other than they were stupid enough to leave all of their stuff in Vassar's house yeah and so the ice guards are going to follow them back to Vassar's house and they're going to jump away after Vassar was stabbed through the stomach so there's two things that come into my mind when I think about that and one is that Vassar has been the as was the king of his own little mountain kingdom for so long and he's held people at his mercy and now for the tables to be turned and him pleading for on the mercy of others I suppose maybe that that was what he was going for was maybe oh it's a bit of poetic justice the other thing that kind of comes to mind is that I was thinking back there as you were speaking is that all the main villains that we've come across so far. So uh, we had Cal in the Unearthly Child. We had the Daleks. Uh, then we had Tagana. All the main antagonists have all died in some way. So like, you know, whether it was usually by the hands of someone else or by, by the incidental or by the story-based companions. And in this story, you have the Vord being taken care of, you have the brains of Morphotime being taken care of, and you also have the conspiracy meeting its fate in one way or the other. I think maybe it would have been a bit jarring if Vassor, the one villain of this group, had been left alive to do his thing. Yeah, but like, there's another way. If you wanted to kill him off, there's another way you could have done it. So Vassar drops the rope. Mm-hmm. He left something, you know, they left something on the other side, so we still have that whole they have to get across the gorge problem do that 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 remains a thing um although it didn't really need to be i think the ice guards themselves were an ending enough but you could always have a cutscene to vassar returning to like you're know, going back to his house and a pack of wolves setting upon him yeah do you know you know him being taken out the same way he took out so many others do you know, i think i think there's other ways they could have done it without it making our heroes seem stupid and without it seeming that they were a party to his death. Overall, though, like I said, I think it's a great sci-fi story. I made that sound like I really don't like the episode. I do. I think the episode's great. It's a great sci-fi story. It's a four out of five. I maybe just wouldn't watch it with younger children. Um, I don't think it's age-appropriate, to be honest. And like, But that's the reason, as you said, like we have these discussions is that it, it kind of brings up these little concepts as well that you know further down the line we're going to see companions and the doctor uh, doctor himself uh, act in ways that we wouldn't think would be befitting of the hero of the story and I suppose that's that's what we're here for is to kind of discuss these points and to invite discussion so for anyone listening that wants to discuss this point as well you know you can come onto the fan page and have a chat with us yep definitely so That wraps us up for the Keys of Marinus. Next week, we're going to be taking a trip to the past to visit the Aztecs, which I'm really looking forward to. Yes. Paddy, you mentioned that people can get in contact with us if they want to join the discussion. Do you want to share our socials there? 
yeah so absolutely and as well guys uh, any comments are always welcome so if you want to get involved with the conversations with us about episodes that have just gone on or upcoming episodes you can check us out at time team that's t-i-m-e-t-e-a-m-p on facebook twitter and instagram or you can email us at time traveling team at teamproductions.com until next time guys bye bye